Amen. All right, Ezra 7, 1 through 10, that's been our text that we've been using. It says, after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, and then it gives his whole background there, and so we're going to jump down to verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses with the Lord God of Israel, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, not just to seek it, but to do it. And he wasn't going to stop there, and he was going to teach it as well. He was going to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So a little bit of introduction for those of y'all. This might be the first day that you're here. The descendants of Abraham became the nation of Israel. If you go back to the book of Genesis, God began through J- with Abraham. I'm going to make you, uh, uh, give you a multitude of descendants. Nations will come from your loins. And so out of that, if you read through the history, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you'll find that the nation of Israel was birthed through Abraham, and through the nation of Israel, God was working to bring forth a people who would, in covenant with him, reflect the nature of God and bring the values and purposes of God into manifestation in the earth. What is God like? All you got to do is look at his people and you'll see what God is like. That was the intention and the purposes of God. Throughout the centuries, these people, the Israelites, would cycle through great times of great devotion and victory, and then they would go through times of rebellion, idolatry, and defeat. Kind of like us, right? Through their history, we see that God delivered them out of their captivity in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. When they were in the promised land, he eventually established through them a place of worship in that land at a place at a city called Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem where they would bear uh, uh, influence, that, that the kingdom that God was setting up through them would bear influence not only in Jerusalem but in the land of Israel and hopefully would impact the rest of the earth. Unfortunately, we also see through their history a repetitive cycle of rebellion and idolatry. If you remember in Jerusalem, they built the temple of God. That's where the worship of God took place. And through their history, uh, through their rebellion, through their idolatry, God continued to show himself merciful, sending prophets to them to call them back to himself. Every time you ever found yourself, you're about to make a mess up really bad, or you're, and all of a sudden somebody from church or a Christian will call you? I don't want to answer that phone. Why? <laughs> Not realizing God's being merciful to you. God is reaching out to you. That's how God did it on a greater scale with the nation, with the prophets. And so what ended up happening as a, as a result of their rebellion, their hard-heartedness, they ultimately found themselves captive, not as servants of God, but servants to the people that were not in, 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 in covenant with God. They were going to find themselves captives to the nations around them, and in this particular instance, captive to the nation of Babylon. It's kind of like, I'm going to either serve God or I'm going to serve the devil. And God, through Israel, we see they weren't willing to serve God, so he let them go, and they served the nation of Babylon, which is a type of the kingdom of darkness or the devil's Uh, uh, purposes and, and dominion in the earth, okay? So the walls of the city that they built 
in Jerusalem, because they were no longer serving God, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were torn down, and the temple that they built, which, by the way, I was doing some kind of study. It was like $183 billion, something like that, was what it, what, what, uh, it cost to construct the temple. That temple that they built for God was torn down, and uh, um, it was destroyed, and they were now taken captives to the might of the enemy of God's people, Babylon. Thankfully, God did not leave things that way. He would once again show himself strong towards his people as he began the process of restoring them to himself. Maybe the Restoration City can get a plug in here. Restoring them to himself and to his purposes. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet prophesied before they went through the complete process of being taken captive to Babylon, that Jeremiah the prophet prophesied, he said, you're going to go captive. But I want to tell you in the end what God's going to do. Jeremiah 29, 11, most of you all know this passage. God was doing this prophetically. He said, I know the thoughts that I have towards you. You're about to go through some difficulties, but understand this. I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord. They are thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then, when, when all this stuff that you've sowed comes upon you because you wouldn't listen to me, when all this comes upon you, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Uh, and you will seek me, and you will find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity, from your enslavement to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography. When you realize it's not what he was promised you, when you call out to me, I will be heard by you. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says, I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place which I caused you, uh, from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Now, uh, in looking through this, last time that we preached on this, we talked about the importance of knowing God's word in the restoration of God's people, declaring the word of God, the word of God uh, being made known to his people. But this week, we're going to focus on how to receive the word of God, the importance of the reception of the word. Word of God in the restoration of God's people will be the focus for today. So let's look at this receiving the word. So Ezra was a was a, a scribe skilled in the word of God. Went back to Jerusalem as we learn. He was teaching the word uh, to the people of God for four and a half months. Four and a half months he was teaching constantly. In and out, in and out, teaching, 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 teaching. It's like a four and a half month crusade that he was having. Afterwards, the people began to recognize their lives did not match up to what they were being taught. Now, you've got to remember, they had been going to church. They had been having worship in the land for decades. I believe, I can't remember, like something like 50 to 80 years. They'd been in the land. They'd been worshiping, having services. But here comes a man of God teaching the Word of God, and all of a sudden they began to realize something ain't right. Because we got a church, we got services, but what he's preaching don't match up to what I'm doing. Right? And so some of the leaders of the, of the people came to Ezra and began to tell him the things that were happening among the people that didn't match up with the word that he'd been teaching them. And what's key for us to realize is that instead of dismissing the word of God, you know, there's a lot of people to say, well, that was for them. Or God, you know, he's a loving God. He understands. Or God, you know, he's not that strict. Or I like this one. That's, 
that's not my truth. Well, whose truth is it? Right? But instead of dismissing the Word of God or ignoring the Word of God, the people reverence the Word of God and they let the Word define for them what was right or wrong instead of altering or minimizing the Word uh, uh, to, to what they wanted to be right or wrong. Right? Because we want to determine what's right and wrong. And most of the time, what we want to be right is what we're doing. And what we want to be wrong is what somebody else is doing. But it doesn't work that way. The Word of God is the same for everyone. There is no partiality. There is no favoritism with the Word of God. It applies to all. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter where you stand on the spectrum. It is the same. Justice is the same for all. Truth is the same for all. So they didn't dismiss it, but they began to reverence it. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 and 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. God doesn't have a problem with it, but who's determining that, the Word of God or your own thinking? Well, it seems good to me, but the Scripture says there is a way that seems right to me, but in the end, it's going to lead me straight to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to think that I'm doing right with God and all of a sudden find out one day, well, I'm not. Well, that's why God gives us His Word, right? The Bible says of itself in Psalms 119.89, Forever, O Lord, not sometimes, not most times, not in times past, not in times future, but forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. You know, it doesn't matter in some countries where they're trying to get rid of the word of God. It doesn't matter if they destroy every Bible on the planet. God's word is going to be the same because it's forever settled in the heavens. You cannot eliminate this word because it is set in stone in the heavenly realms. Psalms 119 verse 160 says the entirety of your word is true. Not some of it, not most of it, but the entirety of it is true. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. 1 Peter 1, 22-25, since you have purified your souls, he's talking to the church, and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. How long? Forever, right? And so then the Bible that we look at here, this Bible is called the canon. The canon is one of those things that they shot during the Civil War. It is one of those things, but that's not what this uh, means when we talk about the word canon. The canon is generally described as the collection of books which form the original and authoritative written rule of faith and practice of the Christian church. The word canon in classical Greek is defined as a straight rod or a rule in the widest sense, and especially in the phrases the rule of the church, the rule of faith, the rule of truth. Let me give you a practical example. Like a measuring tape, the Word of God is the standard by which all truth, all life, all situations are measured by. Some people feel like, well, the people that wrote that, they didn't know the things that we know today. They didn't know when they wrote this, when they said, uh, you know, homosexuality is a sin and it's an abomination, all that kind of... They didn't know that some people can't help it. Well, I think God pretty much knew. And he still said it's wrong. He still says it's not something for today. He still said it's something that we are not to practice. 
right? Well, no, I'm going to go to another church where they say it's okay. I, you can go whatever church you want. I'm not interested in what a church says. I'm interested in what the Bible says. So someone might object that the Bible was written by men. The Bible also addresses that matter when it says in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Word of God, what I'm trying to get you to see today, is God's standard, God's rule for life. I've told this story many times. It kind of helps, but, you know, there's some new people here. My dad, when he was alive, he struggled with uh, diabetes. Struggled with it. Now, how many of you know if uh, you go to the doctor, they, they measure uh, your blood sugar, and it has to fall within a certain, uh, certain criteria, right? So my dad was an engineer. So he was a piping stress analyst, and so he had to take uh, 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 plans, and he had to to determine whether a certain pipe is going to be the right, it's going to meet with the parameters that were that were suggested, whether or not the the the, the it's big enough, whether the joints were, were were acceptable. So he worked within parameters. But it's amazing when he was informed that he was a diabetic and that his numbers were too high. He would say, "No, my numbers aren't too high." Oh, that, and he'd, say, he'd tell the doctor, no, 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 you're wrong. That's not true. Well, your numbers are 200. 200's good. Why is 200 good for, in his eyes? Because 200 lets him keep eating donuts. But if you're 200, all of a sudden, you're, and you recognize that it's outside the parameters of what's right, I mean, what's good for you, then all of a sudden, you're going to have to make some changes in your life. So a lot of people want to change the Word of God, which is God's standard for life, because they don't want to make changes. But the reality is God's Word tells you what's right or wrong, and it's up to us to make changes if we want to see. Now, you don't have to. That's the wonderful thing about God. doesn't make you, doesn't force you. It's not. But if you want to see God's best in your life, you have to come into agreement with God's Word. Right? Listen, fornication, always going to be wrong. Adultery, always going to be wrong. Pornography, always going to be wrong. Homosexuality, always going to be wrong. It's always wrong according to the Word of God. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you if you're bound in it. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about you. It's, he's trying to get you to understand these things that you're practicing, that's what's causing you harm. If you'll, if you'll submit to my truth, I will show you the right way, and I will help you get out of that into what is right so that you can have a victorious, overcoming Christian life. So that you can live life without regrets. You don't have to hold your head down in shame every time you come into the presence of God or you get around somebody or you, you get mad. And what you're really not doing, you're not getting mad at the person. You're just trying to get them away from you because you feel the light of God's presence in their life. God wants you free. And in his, in, in his word and knowing the truth of his word and living according to his word, the Bible says the word of God is living and active, sharper than the two-edged sword, the dividing of sunder of soul and, uh, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And what God is doing with his word of God is he's separating the, the, the what, how did Jesus say? Uh, he's separating the, 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 the wheat from the chaff. So that you can be pure, you can be walk in purity, so you can live a holy life without regret in his sight. What ends up happening, though, I'll tell you what ends up happening, I'll tell you what's going to happen to some of you guys here, is we hadn't seen you in a long time, and the reason we hadn't seen you in a long time is because you haven't been walking in the light. 
And I don't want to go where there's light because it makes me feel guilty about what I'm doing, right? So the Lord doesn't condemn, but the Lord's light does reveal. The goal is when the light gets revealed is not to go back and live in darkness, but to come and find a place at the altar, repent before the Lord, and say, God, help me to take the light that I experience here with me wherever I go. I I just believe that was for somebody here this morning. So anyway, the Word of God is God's standard, God's rule for life. Going back to our text in Ezra, what did the people do when they heard the Word and matched it up to their lives? The Bible says, first and foremost, the leaders repented. Ezra 9, 1 through 2. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. He said, well, I don't know who they are. You know? But what we're going to find out here is they were idolaters. They didn't live serving the one true God. There's a lot of people out there that say they're Christians, but in reality they're not. Right? Because they, they've mixed a lot of stuff into their life. Oh, you can, you can uh, be a Christian and practice New Age. You can be a, pr- a Christian and do these other things that, that I, I, I don't think they're compatible. Right? But remember, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So here, these people had a temple. They had worship. They were, serv- they were having services. The priests were going. Good worship, all that kind of stuff. But what they were doing was totally opposite to what the Word of God was teaching. So what were they getting taught? I don't know. But when Ezra found out, the leaders came, then Ezra began to realize, hey, this ain't right. And Ezra, the teacher, he began to repent on behalf of the people. Ezra 9, 6 through 15, I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you for our, our iniquities. Notice he said our. He, he didn't say, hey man, you guys are in trouble. He said, it's us. And I want you to know, it's us. We're together in this. We walk together. We need one another. When one of us falls, we all in some sense experience that fall. But when one of us succeeds, we all get the benefit of that. We're a community. And Ezra recognized that. And he said, oh God, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. And our guilt has grown up to the heavens. In verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than we deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? After you've delivered me from pornography, should I go back again and do it again? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. What's he doing? He's repenting. In this prayer to God, Ezra reveals what the key issue is. The people had violated the word of God that he had given to his people by intermarrying with the peoples of the land. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because in Exodus 34, 12 through 16, it says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. 
but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of this sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Now, God had warned them not to do so because they would lead the Israelites to commit the very abominations that they are now doing and they were expelled from the land for. But guess what? Did they learn anything? No, because they're doing it again. So what does this say to us? What do we glean from this? Well, let's approach it a different way and see if it helps to make it more applicable to us. They, the people of God, were intermarrying with the people of the world, and so they and their children were, in essence, living worldly lives. The people were going to church, were giving, worshiping, praising God. They were doing all that, but there was no difference between their lives and the lives of the people of the lands around them. The people of God were no longer separate from the world. Instead of the people of God changing the world, the world was changing the people of God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special, King James says, peculiar people, that you may proclaim the praises of him. See, you're supposed to be like him. And being like him, then you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're living in darkness, how can you be a light to the people around you? who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. John 17, 14 through 19, it says, I've given them your word. He's praying to the, to the Lord, to his Father. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, see, some people say, well, I don't want people to hate me. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be unfollowed on Facebook. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, that means set them apart by your truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Did you know that the Bible says about Jesus, a great light has come among us? Did you know the Bible says that we are the lights of the world? Arise, shine, for the light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And he says, as you've sent me, Jesus is saying into the world, I've sent them into the world. You see, you're not just on this planet just to exist. You're not on this planet just to make it to heaven. You're on this planet with a divine mission to proclaim the goodness and the glory of God to the world around you, to be a light to the darkness. And for their sakes, Jesus said, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So not only did the leaders of the people repent, here's, here's the interesting thing, not only did the leaders repent, the people repented. 
You see, it's not enough just for a few people to respond. This has to be the response of all. The people repented, first, uh, Ezra 10, 1 through 5. While Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We, the people, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is still hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law, according to the word. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We are with you. Be of good courage and do it. In other words, it's kind of like when you go to the doctor and if you've got a, 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 you know, a, you've got a big old long uh, a splinter in your finger and they don't have any anesthetic and they're going, we're going to have to pull it out. It's the only... And you're going like, I know it's best for me. Oh, it's going to hurt. But do it. That's what they're saying. It's going to hurt. But it's the right thing to do. What did AJ say? He said, it hurts. It hurts to be exposed. It hurts to have the word of God cutting to the dividing asunder and soul and spirit like a sword. But I want to tell you something. There's two sides to every knife. A knife can cut you, but a knife can also in the hands of a surgeon heal you. So we see here that the people realize the error of their ways and repenting. What I want you to see here is that repenting is not just saying you're sorry. You can be sorry you got caught. There's a lot of prisoners in jail who are sorry they got caught. But as soon as they get out, they go back to the same old mire that they got them into. It's like a, a what does it say, a dog uh, uh, returns to wallow in his own vomit. They're not sorry for what they did. They're sorry they got caught in what they did. But see, repentance is more than that. It's not just confessing your faults because you've been caught. It's more than that. Repentance is recognizing your errors changing the way you think about what you've done and then correcting the errors you've made. The Israelites who were repenting came to Ezra and the priests and informed them that they would make things right. How? By making sure their lives and families reflected what Ezra was teaching out of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11 says, For even if I've made you sorry with my letter, which actually became the word of the Lord, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, he said, I don't regret it, though I did regret it at first. For I perceive that the same epistle, the same letter made you sorry, though only for a while. I rejoice now, however, not that you were made sor sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Right? I don't want to correct my kids. Why? He gets mad or he gets upset or gets all the... You know what? You're, you're not doing anything for his benefit. Preachers that don't preach the truth are not helping their people. You're not helping them. You're keeping them uh, bound to the enemy. You're keeping them bound to the things of the world, bound to what the enemy wants and God wants them free. Well, how do I set them free? Preach the truth. Well, they're not going to like it. It doesn't matter whether they like it or not. A doctor doesn't tell you what you like. A doctor tells you what the truth is. This is what the report says. This is what's happening. I don't want to go to the doctor. I'll be honest. With you. I don't want to go to the doctor because I'm afraid they're going to make me stand on a scale. I don't want to stand on a scale. 
Because if I stand on the scale, I'm going to be confronted with my true weight. I can't just buy bigger pants. I'm going to know the truth. And when I know the truth, then I'm going to have to stop eating those holy donuts. And I don't want to stop eating those holy donuts. So I don't go to the doctor. It seems kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? But we do the same thing. And Paul says, I know it made you sorry, but it was only for a while because it led to your repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. In other words, in the end, it's going to work out toward your benefit. See, Jesus, the Bible says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God has come that you may have life and life more abundantly. But to experience that life and life more abundantly, you're going to have to let go of some stuff. Didn't Jesus say, he that would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me? No, no, no. I don't have to give up anything to be a follower of God. Well, you're right. You don't, but you're not going to live a victorious Christian life. If you want to experience a victorious Christian overcoming life, I'm not saying you're going to have millions of dollars in the bank. I'm not saying you're going to have 12 suits in the I'm not saying that. But you want to experience a life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit because you know a lot of people would be of everything they have to be healthy and whole, to be happy, to be joyful. And God gives it for free. I've come that you may have life and life more. But how does it happen? You've got to be willing to give up some stuff. Paul says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things, you've proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Remember the context. I didn't want to write to you. I knew it was going to cause you problems. But in the end, it worked out for your good. Do you think any parent likes correcting their kids? you think any parent likes teenagers looking at them and saying, I hate you. You're mean. You're, you're like, I mean, do you think any parent likes that? But if you're a good father, you're a good mother, you're going to correct them. Because you know in the long run, that's going to work out for their benefit. Right? And in the end, may not be right away. But somewhere down the road, when they have kids of their own, they're going to come back and say, I recognize what you did for me. Thank you. And now I've learned, and I'm going to do the same for my kids. So in conclusion, Ezra had been teaching the Word of God to the people for four and a half months. Afterwards, the people began to recognize their lives did not match up to what they were being taught. Instead of dismissing it or ignoring it, the people reverenced the Word, and they let the Word define for them what was right and what was wrong instead of altering or minimizing the Word to what they wanted to be right or wrong. And by the way, let me just say this. Uh, if you never get into this Word, you're not going to have a problem. If you go to a church where they don't preach the word, you're not going to have a problem. And if you say to yourself, well, that's what I want, you're welcome to do that. But if you get into this word, I promise you there's going to be some changes in your life if you reverence it. You cannot read this and it not want to make changes in your life. Now, whether you make those changes or not is up to you. But the reality is, today, as a, as a generation, this is my observations. I can't prove it. I have no statistics for it. It's just something I feel. That we have more access to the Word of God than any other generation throughout history. We have it in every single version. Well, I don't understand that version, so they write another one. Well, I don't like that version, so they write another one. Well, that one, they're getting rid of the, the key words of God, and so you don't read that. Bottom line is, whatever they give you, you don't want to read it. 
And he said, well, I'm not a reader. So they work out an app where they can read it to you. And you can be read to it in, in, uh, in English. You can be read to it in Spanish. You can be read to it in uh, the voice of Russell Crowe. Or you can be read to it in the voice of Taylor Swift. But what good does it do you if you don't listen to it? We have more access to the Word of God than anybody has ever had. And to me, and don't take this the wrong way, I mean this in the, the, the very literal definition of the word. We are some of the most ignorant generation of Christians that have ever existed. My people perish for lack of knowledge. That's what the Bible says. Ignorant means no knowledge. I don't know what the Word of God teaches. Remember what I told you when I got saved? They said, read your Bible. You know, I was foolish enough to read it. And I hope you're foolish enough to read it. Because this word will change your life. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. And I can do what it says I can do. What we must glean from this study in Ezra is the importance of repentance. We also need to recognize that repentance is not simply saying you're sorry. It's not just confessing your faults because you've been caught, but there's really no change of heart in it. It's much more than that. True repentance is recognizing our errors, recognizing the sinfulness of our ways, changing the way we think about what we've been doing, and then taking the necessary steps to correct the errors that we have found ourselves in making. And, and if we don't make changes, we'll continue to make but I have good news for you. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And he's in this house today. And Jesus made people free because I read in this word all those years ago when he walked on the planet, he made people free. And then he sent the Spirit of God who walked among the disciples and with the disciples and was on the disciples and wherever they went, they set people free. And I want you to know that same Spirit is in this house today. And he rests on us, and that same spirit wants to bring into manifestation the word of the Lord, and he wants to set you free. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what kind of situation that you're in. You can sit there, and the enemy can say to you, don't respond. Don't do it. You don't want anybody to know what you're going through. You can go through that. You can listen to that. You can leave here and be in the same situation you were before you came in, and you can have regrets. Why didn't things change? Because in order for things to change, you've got to recognize the need to change, and then you've got to be willing to take a step. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I see myself in the word that's being preached. I see myself in what you're saying. My, my life, I'm telling you, matches up to that. I need to change. I, I, I have things that I'm going through. It may not be the same thing that AJ's going through, but I know it's wrong. I know I need to be set free. I want to be set free. Today is the day. Well, I'll wait for tomorrow. For some of us, tomorrow never comes. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm just telling you, tomorrow never comes. I'm not saying you're going to die today or you're going to die tomorrow, but when you get to tomorrow, guess what? Tomorrow's the next day. You get to the day after that, tomorrow's the next day. Tomorrow never arrives. Today is the day. Today.